Welcome to To Be Brief. You guys have missed a lot of deliberation, frankly, uh, just before we've we've started recording this. Um, we've had some sound issues. As a result, uh, we have several microphones that are working. Not quite enough for each person. Therefore, <laughs> throughout this podcast, our faces will be very close to one another. We have to redistribute the wealth of the microphones. Needless to say, we've pushed ahead, <laughs> and we can't wait to tell our stories, which shouldn't surprise anybody. And um, thanks again for continuing to listen to us uh, go on uh, everything but briefly. We have, of course, today uh, Drake Buckman. Hello. Trey Buckman. (laughs) Uh, Hi. John Devlin. Hello. And myself, Nick Castellano. And uh, with no further ado, we'll go ahead and jump right into our first story of this segment. Who doesn't love animals? For most people, pet ownership seems to come and find them at some point. But why do we even take on such a strange arrangement? Unless you opt for a parrot or a tortoise, you are committing yourself to an extremely bonded relationship that will ultimately end before you know it, leaving you to question if all that love and companionship was worth the fleeting lifespan and the emotional loss it implies. What is even more challenging of a task is to become involved in rescue, where you take on the sickest, saddest, and injured animals to rehabilitate, adopt, or provide a forever home yourself. I've collected many stories of rescue and adoption over the years, and I have a few I'd like to share. As a young boy, my grandmother had a property with a whole colony of feral cats. I was obsessed with trying to tame them by bribing them with handfuls of dried cat food, or getting a chance to hold a litter of kittens that I would find hidden in the cavity of a tree or outside by the waste bins. What imprinted on me was the level of care these animals were missing in their feral state. I was fascinated by these interactions, which formed a lifelong curiosity with all types of animals, with a reoccurring theme that along the way, many of them could use some help. In the mid-90s, our family cat provided us with an injured, infantile creature who was pale pink and colored to our doorstep. What could it be? Nobody knew, so we tended to its injuries and purchased some emergency supplies to care for this miscellaneous animal our cat had procured. Doubtful it would not make it through the night due to its extremely young age and the substantial puncture on its hip from the cat, we did our best to comfort this little creature through the night. Lo and behold, it was still breathing the following day, the next week, and the next month. Eventually we had raised a fully rehabilitated squirrel that we affectionately named Bambino. We would later release this triumph of an animal on my grandmother's property, where it would inhabit a bird feeder in a palm tree, always identifiable by an off-color scarring on its hip where the cat had clutched him as a baby. He would later find a mate and have a litter of squirrels that would inhabit the area for years to come. This squirrel rearing would later circle back to help me in my college years. As I returned to my apartment late one night, there was a whole litter of tiny screeching animals on the side of my home. I left them outside for a few hours hoping the mother would come collect them. But the temperature began to drop, and they were being preyed upon by ants. So I scooped up the infantile creatures and put them in a shoebox lined with an old shirt. I ran out to buy kitten formula and a plastic syringe to administer the formula and began an around-the-clock feeding schedule that would need to happen every four hours. For two weeks, I weaved between classes and my social life to come home and feed my fragile little friends. Ultimately, they all survived my care, and I was relieved of my duty by a raccoon rescue. Smug cats and trash pandas too boring? Fine. How about sea turtles? Tapping into another story from my youth, I found myself being woken up in the middle of the night because my grandmother had an unknown sea turtle nest in her backyard, and now all the hatchlings had scrambled their way to her brightly lit patio. 
I was enlisted to help corral any lost turtles and get them back to the beach where they could have a 1 in 1,000 chance of seeing adulthood. Not great odds, but better than zero. All these stories to this point are occurrences that had just found me. I had been intervening in these animals' survival by happenstance. Around my mid-twenties, I stumbled upon a young kitten who had been separated from its litter and mother. I took the stranded cat with me, initially with the hopes of getting it adopted. It became apparent very quickly that my girlfriend and I had developed a significant bond, and as fast as we had tried to help this little animal, he was part of our animal family. Later, we would mix in a pit bull, who we would endeavor to get adopted for many years to come. Ultimately, we would end up adding him as a resident animal as well. Add these to the small chihuahua that we had, we had quickly made humans the minority in our household. After quite some time with our animal trio, we tragically lost our beloved chihuahua on a cold, dark night to an opportunistic coyote. Heartbroken, we began to foster dogs to fill the hole left in our small animal kingdom. Over the course of the next few years, we would have many dogs stay with us, all with various challenges. Some with behavioral issues, others with medical issues, all of them needing significant love and care to get adopted out. The stretch of our rescue life saw 13 very imperfect dogs come into our house, receive training, and get adopted to loving homes. We found this cycle of fostering to be redeeming after the loss of our little chihuahua. The universe would later pay us back by reconnecting us with one of our lost chihuahua's littermates, who the owner needed to surrender for personal reasons, ultimately restoring our beloved animal trio. Our latest escapade of rescue involved a litter of severely malnourished and ill kittens. When we received them, they were all crammed into a kennel, covered in filth that was so severe some of them could not open their eyes. They were truly a heaping mess of animals in need of rescue. Some were so weak we had concerns they would not make it through the first couple nights. But over the next few days, they began to stabilize and gain weight. And in no time, they were a healthy, functioning group of kittens. Adoptions went very fast. As most people looking to get a cat do not find a kitten to be a very hard sell. What we did not know is that half the litter had FIPV, which rapidly becomes fatal. This is also known as feline coronavirus. There could not have been a more bittersweet conclusion to any rescue assignment we have ever undertaken. There are many people who still have their cats as companions from the litter, and many who had to say goodbye just as swiftly as they opened their homes to them. So what's the point of all this? You take in these animals and sacrifice to get them in a place where they can live a long and happy life, only to be confronted with loss and the torrent of new animals that need placement behind them. In the U.S., 6.5 million cats and dogs find their way into the shelter annually, and almost a quarter of those will be euthanized. For the multitude of animals we have helped along the way, there will always be a hoarder with 100 cats in their home, or a dog breeder turning out vicious dogs that will never be able to adjust to a normal life. Rescue animals will always be created in some regard by the deficiencies in human behavior. But there is a tremendous effort made every day to reduce the suffering borne by human ignorance and cruelty. Rescue requires much time, patience, and committal of your home and resources to stabilize these animals in need. However, the reward is great for those brave enough to undertake it. Over time, there will be heartbreaking situations, and that's the nature of the activity, because you are literally rescuing animals in critical need. There's something authentically rewarding to be gained between you, the animal, and its new owner that is unique to the cycle of rescue. And if you can find the space in your bustling life, it's a journey I highly recommend. Okay, so it's funny that you mentioned the the dog breeding 
the vicious dogs because it actually reminds me of a funny story um for well also great job but also me um so (laughs) the um when i was working at a movie theater uh, uh, there was a manager there who told the story about how he um (laughs) he went on a first date he's a marine right and he came back and he went on his first date ever that he came back at and (laughs) he he met this girl at a bar and she was like i have this really fun thing that we can go to and he was like okay so she picks him up and she's driving him to this like really crappy part of town and he's like i have no idea what what are we doing and she's like oh you just you wait this is gonna be a great time and they show up in this backyard and there are dog fights straight up dog fights going on like like to the death dog fights and he was like you know aghast at what was happening that she was like i'm taking him on the first date so she he stepped in and he offered to pay like a thousand dollars to adopt both dogs which were both these giant pit bulls that he ended up keeping for the rest of his life he still had one it just died when i met him but he ended up actually keeping both those pit bulls that he adopted from dog fights so either way you know it's cool things like that 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 make animal rescue kind of a uh you know it's it's it always makes things better for everybody all around yeah it's it's really interesting you, you start with this very um unworkable animal it doesn't seem like it can integrate doesn't seem like anybody's gonna be take be able to take care of it but it's um they they turn around really fast in an environment. You just have to give them some direction, and they just they learn very quickly. And it's just it's it's more about just a system being overburdened, where we just have so many animals we're trying to cycle through, and it's they just need you know a couple months to get straight, and then somebody's always looking for a dog. But it's it's a weird kind of snaking its tail issue. <laughs> what so what did you ever answer the question for yourself about? about uh what was the point i i think it just comes down to to kind of caring for something else and just you know it's a human problem that a lot of these i mean there's you have this naturalistic approach where nature is you know very very cruel it doesn't play favorites but you know um like the final point some people breed dogs to be you know destined to have to be euthanized or um you know a lot of those rescues um you they come from like that uh the example of the hoarder where you'll find some lady has 100 dogs and now that's a human problem that's not just a stray problem right and it and we we lost um like we said when we lost the little dog it was you know we didn't really want another dog but we kind of wanted to feel whole again because we felt like we didn't protect that one so it it became kind of a longer walk for us to feel good about being pet owners again and it it, over time it was it was very rewarding because the the ones you get they um me being the male in the relationship a lot of the dogs didn't even want to approach me because they've been abused by a male so right to get to to build a relationship very quickly and kennel train them and house train them and you go through all this work and you're like oh i made a great dog and then you give it away it's very you know there's almost always tear shed because you you like add a member to your family and then you're clipping it back off so yeah. we can live a better life but yeah, we were we were churning them out there for a while. <laughs> That's interesting. You had those interactions your whole life, though. I didn't I didn't know the stories about the kittens or the uh, the turtles and the yeah. squirrel was interesting one to me that you were a squirrel raiser. Yeah, there's like, um, and if if you go into the details, there was the the story would be a day long because like the squirrel played in the Christmas tree and it was part of our Christmas, <laughs> and you know, but there was also stories where like we had a rescue cat in Colorado that I had to drive in the middle of the night to get a blood transfusion from a living donor cat named goliath and like (laughs) once you put it all in a pile you're like these animal stories are just infinite 
Yeah. Like, yeah. this is the most truncated version of my history of trying to help animals along in their life. It, it seems like it's it's funny because it seems like it's the exact same problems that, like, child care, you know, in this country has. Like, you have way over too many people with not enough people to take care of them. And you have a system in which, like, I am sure there's a lot of, like, foster dog, cat, turtle people, you know, that are just they're doing it because I'm is do you get paid for doing that? I actually don't know. Is there any No, no. And the and the people that participated in the heaviest, like we put limitations on it. We're like one dog at a time sure. and we're not going to destroy our house because, you know, there's there's always going to be too many animals in the system, but the people that were most uh, embedded in the rescues, they had, you know, their life was a mess. They had their that was their whole life. Their whole house was full of animals and they were just trying to save everything, and it's it's just impossible. You know, you help out where you can, and but we were able to, you know, be very attentive of each and every animal. What's the solution, do you think, to all of these animals? I mean, do you think that I, – I, I heard someone speak one time and said that if you buy a dog or a cat, you should have to register with a license, and then depending on the breed, maybe have insurance. That's which, so absurd, though, isn't well, it? Well, the idea is if you, if you actually make people have to go through a license event, then – that will cut down supposedly on production because demand may drop as well. Like people are just kind of getting dogs and cats and going, oh, okay, well, this didn't work out and they're dumping them, right? Is that what's happening? Yeah, well, and I think it's just, it's litters as well. Like um, people, I mean, that that would be the most responsible thing. I mean, that's what rescues love to do. They get the dog, they fix it, the chain's done there. Somebody just has to maintain it from there. But it's when you get a rescue of dogs with a ton of puppies involved. And those puppies mean the puppies are guaranteed to get adopted but they basically take space away from the older rescues that you know that are not as desirable maybe a little more work so i I don't know if there's a solve for it um they did say that there's been just through increased rescue efforts i mean the number of euthanizations have dropped pretty dramatically um but you you just can't fix it i mean we I, i know alicia once tried to trap some cats and a lady stole the cat trap and said how dare you take my giant feral cat colony on building and like wow there there's a level of um people just don't know how destructive it is to just you know it's very cute to watch them grow and give them unlimited food resources but it creates a, a humongous problem if you don't fix them and just enjoy your outdoor cat like that it's like those people who raise like alligators you know and like like really crazy exotic kind of things joe exotic it, like okay uh-huh. <laughs> um the, ti- the tiger king fitted but no like i mean even those people like run zoos like i mean like people who are just like privately collecting animals who are just very much like 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 on tiger king the guy who's like yeah the one that scarface is based on like right. those people who yeah, are like yeah. who are like i just want to have like a giant caiman and a bear and like all this other things and that's what i want to own and it's like and then eventually they're like, I'm tired of this. So they like release it into the woods and they have like yeah. 8,000 of them wandering around. And it's like, like the pythons in the Everglades, like the pythons in the Everglades. Yeah. I mean, like the, it's just a crazy thing. That's like, I will never understand how you can say to yourself, I'm going to spend a preposterous amount of money on some easily um, avoidable situation, like buying a python. You know, a python that if you don't know a python is going to grow 25 feet long and needs to eat like a camel's worth of meat every day, then I don't know why you're buying a python because 
it, it just shocks me that people do that. And then their instinct after that is like, I don't know what to do. I guess I'll just release it into the woods. Like, it's just very. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's somebody getting an object and not an animal to them. Yeah. They, they, they don't know what it is. They haven't dealt with like really a suffering animal or they just, they can't feel compassionate outside of. But it's not even about compassion. It's like, it's like, it's like if you buy a walrus, like I bought a walrus and then you're like, what are you going to do with this walrus? Well, for the rest of my life, I have to spend $300 on, on like fish to feed the walrus and I need a giant walrus tank and I need some sort of like ocean sized pool for the walrus to swim around in. And like, that's what you're talking about. Like, and if, if it's not about compassion, it's like the necessity of like doing those things to have the rate, the animal be like yeah, continue and, and to live. It's, it's like an alligator is very cute when it's small and all these things are very cute when they're small like a little baby python's very cute so it can (laughs) strangle you and and a lot of it is like you you know you sell the um you sell the small animal that was the thing with like micro pigs which didn't exist micro pigs they were just farmers selling baby pigs and then people would take them home be like oh this is gonna be like a 15 pound lap dog and then they have this giant pig they don't know what to do with (laughs) and you you can sell animals you know towards people's ignorance and they're (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they don't push back much on it and then they become exceedingly irresponsible when they change kind of the the shape and form they started as i feel like so many that there's a culture though which is always interesting to me I, maybe it's just a matter of marketing but i feel like there's a lot more people in this country that just care so passionately about animals and they don't feel that way around about children i was about to say the same thing i mean i, I don't I, I don't know and i'm not trying to say that you know adopting a child or fostering a child is is a Tremendous responsibility, obviously, much more than a dog or a cat. But, um, you know, when I was growing up, there wasn't the idea of someone of a rescue animal. That is a product of a very positive product of public relations where, you know, when I was younger, well, the dog pound killed a lot of dogs and they put a, you know, they, they just, that was part of life. That was part of it. Like you didn't have this sense. of That's why the dog runs away from the dog pound. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, like rescue invokes, this is something that you can do to actually rescue these, these kids. And I see the Sarah McLaughlin, you know, the two minute commercials with the, the and, and, and people will do anything for the dog. I found myself, we just put our dog down this, this year and it was extremely painful. And I found myself doing things with that dog as far as patience wise and just situations I found myself in, like your whole thing about the cat transplant yeah. blood. Yeah. You probably were driving going, what am I doing? Like, yep. why am I driving for this cat, which is probably going to pass away to my, then you're doing all these things. And, and people feel that way. I feel that way about, about cats too. I mean, I'm, I mean about it animals is, too, but it's so yeah. weird. There's like an, there's like a pet infrastructure where you just don't mess with cats. You don't mess with dogs and cats and people will do so much for them. Now, well, I think it's just know? people, you know, I mean, it's such a big, I mean, we have such a shortage of people who want to foster, you know, kids, you know, and we have such a shortage of good people who want to foster kids. There's so many bad people who foster kids who just do it for money. And there's, there's just the whole system is destroyed. And the pet system, uh, is a great, oddly enough, a great example of like a way in which we could try to you know, look at what succeeded and what failed at the way, the positive aspect of the pet, you know, industry when it comes to rescue for me at least is that it ends up being an experimental ground of how do you how are you able to deal with children you know because the closest experiment that you can get to because you don't ever want to try something with a foster system or like if you try to reform the foster system and then you don't want to try something new because what if it's a disaster and hundreds of children are you know scarred forever because of decisions you made as a legislator so you're like okay sometimes i feel like it's like a children light 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Almost like it a hundred percent is because you learn uh, like nonverbal communication. You right. learn that if you don't give this living thing a set of rules, it's just gonna run out of control. So it it, it very much so is like child light because it, you can't get it adopted out if it's not potty trained and if it right. can't sit in a kennel and be quiet, that's a problem. So we do all that legwork and then somebody says, "Oh, look at this." This is a great marketable dog. And we're like, yeah, it was a pain. My carpet's right. ruined. <laughs> right. How lucky you are to have this dog. You're like, no, I wasn't lucky. I did all the work. Yeah, so it's it's work. But I think to your point, Trey, like it's, you know, at the end of the day, and to your point, Trey, they are animals. You can have leeway. You know, they could go to a home that's maybe not as safe, but it's better of a shot than they would have had where we can't have that leeway with children. It's just, right. yeah. it would be, you know, if you want to talk about inhumanity, you you have to have this much more staunch check for what you do despite the system being overburdened where rescue is very accessible. I mean, we've had dogs that have been in and out of the house in under a week or we've had them for six months, but it's, it's much more, it's much more achievable than, you know, the, the commitment um, it seems so great to foster a child and also the separation. It's hard enough to separate right. <laughs> from, you know, well, but the question, like, let's just say you have Percy, which is the pit bull you're talking about, and that's just a great dog. And he is exactly the opposite, I think, of everyone's assumptions about pit bulls. He's extremely gentle. He's strong, et cetera. But if you gave, if someone came along and said, for whatever reason, I'm going to take Percy away, as opposed to if you had a child, I think you would naturally think the trauma of the child would be maybe worse for the child. Yeah. Obviously. Like, you know, after a year, if it was a good home, you would assume Percy would say, oh, well, these are nice people. And I'm enjoying after a myself. week, dogs plug right in. You right. just give them a good environment. And they say, this is great. This yeah. is just fine for me. They're Sometimes, just... though, there's like that, that story uh, of the dog in Japan that like the Futurama episode is based on where like yeah. he like the owner, he had <laughs> an owner, yeah. right? And he walked with him to the train station every day and he got on the train and then he died at work. And so he never came back from the train. So the dog waited every day at the train station for his owner to come back until the dog died for like a decade yeah. he would show up at the train station and they'd feed the dog people would feed right the dog yeah and eventually they put like a statue of the dog up or whatever but i mean it's it's just a it's a thing that like i think dogs are like that like i think they tend to plug in really easy but sometimes i think you know animals are have trauma too so if you have a you know an animal that has trauma they tend to just cling on to th- whatever it is that makes them you know, feel safe or secure in a very base way. Like just, they, they want to feel that they're not in danger. So, so, you know, an owner like that's going to make them feel not in danger. So they're going to cling on to that. So you learned empathy too, which is a, a very powerful tool for children with animals. You yeah. Well, it, patience was huge too, yeah. because they're going to have problems. It's not their fault. It's, you know, it's kind of the hand they were dealt. We're electing to bring them in and destroy the house and do what they do. And I, I feel like we became, very patient through all the process, through all those little dogs to now where we get them like, uh, like kennel training. I became very good at that. You just, you have to put them in there and break them. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's like three days of them yelling and like, <laughs> over time. I was like, yep, this is what we do. And like, you could time your watch and then they were done and they were improved. That's exactly what happens with a baby. Yeah. When a baby sleeps through the night, it takes three nights for him to basically, basically, right, Nick? <laughs> yeah. And I, I, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it, it, I think it is like, like back to your point of like child light. Like if you were to, before you're like, mo- that's what most foolish 20 year olds do, right? I'm going to get a dog and you're like, don't do it. Right. Don't ruin your life. Right. But you could always foster a dog and be like, what does that feel like? <clears throat> and you get the improvements. You get the building blocks for children. Mm-hmm. You get 
you get all these things. There's there's this great thing to be had, I think, of this window of most people's life. Like, if you could imagine every 20-year-old person said, I'm going to spend, like, three months learning about um, caring for something else besides myself. Yeah. I'm 20 years old, and what will it teach me for the future? Like, I think it, it has huge benefits, even if it, you're just kind of That's what dogs have kind in of, and out. Dogs have kind of become that. They went from, like, a very... You talked about how people thought animals were objects when they buy like a python or a yeah. bear well that's what animals were for a very very long time they sure, were objects yeah. to help human beings do things they were hunting dogs or they were pull sleds or they would be war dogs or whatever they were they were objects they were things services to be used rendered you know whenever humans wanted to you know very expendable and as we've gotten richer as a, as just a human race society wise as we become richer, we become more wealthy, we've had more luxury time, we've started to take dogs on for no reason other than we just want dogs. And, you know, you start seeing that it's like, you know, they become, especially nowadays, like the way in which a young person decides whether or not they want children, like really at the end of the day. It's like the practice. It's like you get a dog and you're like, is that, you know, am I, am I content with this? Like, is this all I want? Or even if they don't do it explicitly, even if they're not buying a dog for the purpose of saying, I'm going to get a child leg, they're doing it because they're saying, well, I want something other than myself that I can love and that will love me and I want to take care of something. You're accepting that, you know, implicitly, even if it's not explicitly, you're you're like practicing for, for a child. And then at the end of the day, you decide, is this something I want to continue or am I good with this or do I not even want to do this anymore? You know, that's what dogs have kind of become in that sense. Yeah, is there a morality that you see? Like th there seems to be an implied per pursuit of, of a morality that there's like a moral imperative now uh, to foster a dog, take a, care of a dog out of a kennel and raise it until it's very old and then never put it to sleep and until it absolutely can't. You know what I mean? But that's, I mean, I, I think no, that's no, nothing what, wrong with that. What do you think, though? I, I think it's, it's, it's um, like it's, it's the nature of it, right? Yeah. We're going to have animals and there, there's just too many of them. We, we can't handle it. And like there are much greater causes like children in foster care. So at some point, there has to be a limitation on that. So I think really all it acts is, is an offsetting effect for the people that are causing a problem or breeding okay. or refusing to fix their animals. And it's not really like us in a vacuum, not being just two rescue people, but not a rescue organization. Right. We're not going to move the needle a whole lot. But, you know, if we have the space in our life, we, you know, we took a living thing and we did something that really mattered for it. Yeah. No. And over time, yeah. it's amazing to connect with people, you know, 10 years back that say, you know, that little yappy, annoying dog, like I have it and I loved it. And it became part of like and a you family bring, story. You bring joy to people and you bring joy yeah. to the animals. And, and it's like, it's a really positive service that people do. And I 100% agree. It's like you're, you're helping a living thing, which is. Yeah. good on its own but but the fact that you're then providing that to people who then their lives become better because of your actions that but, is a real but positive. i completely agree to some degree it's it's kind of neutral because you're not going to fix the problem through your actions you're gonna you're gonna kind of buffer you're acting as a buffer and it's you kind of grow like it's it's kind of like everybody wins like the wrap-up of the whole piece was like you know you the, the animal and yeah. the new owner you all kind of win they get a family member Sure. You kind of learn a little bit about yourself and the yeah. dog obviously gets to... I mean, animals you know, are goofballs survive. and they deserve love too. <laughs> animals are goofballs and they deserve love too. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much, Really John. good job. That was excellent. Very interesting. I, I've, you're making me want a dog now again, so um, thanks for that. Oh, I'm very dog. sorry. <laughs> Enjoy your college experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
All right, I believe because of our, um, we've decided to throw the order out the window along with two of our microphones. So I believe it will be uh, my Padre Drake coming up next. Yep. My grandson, like most respectable infants, now has a proven disdain for holy water. He was baptized yesterday in a private ceremony at the oldest church in town. We gathered in the baptistry, making small talk with the priest through our surgical masks, waiting for the family to filter in from the heat. It is August in Sarasota. Outside is a wet blast furnace. Filtered light and the best air conditioning in the city surrounds us. Tripp is seated on his mother's lap, a puddle of love, and I feel a hum inside, like I've swallowed a tuning fork. It has been almost an entire calendar of Sundays since we sat in these pews. We have hidden behind COVID to account for the last six months, but the truth is my wife and I stopped gradually, then entirely. Sunday mornings felt precious, and we, full of faith, made the unspoken decision to stay in bed and eat pancakes or go for a walk or wander around doing nothing. Our fate that has brought us here, however, has never left. We are in the right building. We believe. The trajectory of baptism that began as a ministry in the desert 2,000 years ago has curved through time to a light now upon my grandson. The uncles and aunts and grandparents that will gather present as a wall of love and support unencumbered by liturgy. The devout are represented as are the agnostic, the seeker, and the hopeful. My grandson even has a Jewish uncle, grazing at him in the pews, supportive and patient. John the Baptist appears in four separate gospels in the Bible. He also appears in two secular volumes of Jewish history and one Roman government account. He's also known as John the Forerunner in Eastern Christianity, John the Immerser in some Baptist traditions, and the prophet John, or Yaha, in Islam. He was born into a prominent Jewish family, a descendant of Aaron, but in the year 28 AD, renounced the world and moved to the desert surrounding Jerusalem. They began to experience visions and dreams of a coming Messiah. John was a member of, an, of the Esserine sect. According to the Jewish histor- historian Josephus, the Esserines practiced collective ownership of property, were forbidden from swearing oaths and from sacrificing animals. They controlled their tempers and served as channels of peace, carrying weapons only for protection against robbers. After a three-year probationary period, newly joining members like John would take an oath that included the commitment to practice piety towards God and righteousness towards humanity, to maintain a pure lifestyle, including celibacy, to obtain, abstain from criminal and immoral activities, and to transmit rules, their rules uncorrupted and to preserve the ancient books of the Essenes and the names of the angels. Part of their activities included, included purification by water rituals, which brings us here to this church, which was supported by rainwater catchment and storage. Repentance, according to the Esserines, was a prerequisite to baptism. They shall not enter the water, for they will not be cleansed unless they have turned from evil, said one of their proverbs. Purity and cleanliness was considered so important to the Esserine clergy that, believe it or not, they would refrain from defecation on the Sabbath. John lived on honey and locusts and slept on the cold desert floor in clothes made of camel hair. He drank from the River Jordan and baptized those who came to him. They would form loose lines and wade into the river where he stood waist-deep for hours, whispering their sins to him before he pushed them under, dissolving their regrets and fears and pronouncing them reborn anew. Jesus was famous before they met. Their mothers, Elizabeth and Mary, were related. According to the Gospels, both young Mary and menopausal Elizabeth had been visited by the angel Gabriel six months apart during their pregnancies, announcing the impending birth. Christianity begins at that moment with these two Jewish outcasts in the Jordan on that day. In front of a large crowd, John recognizes Jesus as the Messiah and asks for his blessing. Jesus demurs, asking that John baptize him instead. A voice is heard by the multitude. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. 
After his immersion, a dove immediately alights upon Jesus, who then travels further into the desert where he stays for 40 days fasting. He is visited by Satan, who tempts him with earthly riches in exchange for turning against God. Jesus rejects Satan and emerges from the desert, beginning his ministry. He is crucified two years later. John remains in the desert, where he is brought to King Herod in Jerusalem. He is eventually decapitated after criticizing Herod for sleeping with his brother's wife. But now, all of us, we are all gathered and ready. The priest is kind, with children of his own. He runs us through the ceremony, amateur actors auditioning for familiar play. I look at Tripp, who is burrowed against his nervous mother, pacing small circular paths in the marble aisle. He, like all of us, has come, to, come from where we know not. We are an educated group, a naturally skeptical tribe. But here we are, as our parents and grandparents before us, ensuring our newest members marked by love. We affirm in the service that we reject Satan, which feels exactly right. The boy is brought forward, the priest reluctant, almost apologetic, yet determined. There is no river here now, but there is a marking, a definite, palpable sign that has been impressed on my grandson and pushes past his protests. The grand old church rings with his cries. We look on and we look to the past. I see my son, Trey, 18 years ago, almost to the day, struggling under the coldness and surprise of the water. This very priest became my son's youth minister 12 years later, ordained then, but fervent. The circle opens, then closes, and continues. That baby is now a godfather to this baby. And as my brain links this connection, I feel the humming inside of me continuing at a higher, warmer frequency as I adjust my mask and speak my lines. What sin plagues Trip on this day, Ernie baby? He carries no regret, harbors no lust. He does not scheme or cheat. He delights in laughter. He is acutely selfish, as all babies must be. He demands food at regular times and defecates unapologetically, even on the Sabbath. My atheist friends ask the obvious. Does your God judge Trip? No, no, I speak inwardly no. He loves him. I'm here with my law degree and my liberal arts education and my functional reality, and I still want him to be marked physically for good. I am an active sinner. The monkey suit that houses my soul loves the table and the vineyard. I love my reflection and the sound of my voice. I'm guilty of all of it, and I struggle every day to walk on my feet of clay. We are inclined towards evil as we recline towards good. Temptation is baked into us. No sensible adult denies the existence of evil or banality in this world. Our modern problem is our denial of the holy, our inability to even consider that, <clears throat> consider that which we may not be able to explain. The baptismal ceremony is older than Europe. The process is essential to Christian faith. Across all Catholic and Orthodox and Protestant sects, for example, the rules allow unbaptized people who are dying to be baptized by anyone, even non-Christians. The process ends. We say amen. Amen is derived from the Hebrew amen, which means certainty, truth, and verily. Trip, insulted by the water, rejecting the truth, makes his parents pay. His aunt, my eldest daughter, ruminates on his discomfort, alive with love. This is the beginning of a journey that I wanted to witness, with the only woman I ever wanted to marry, of this baby and his journey towards faith. We all sit together on those pews, surrounded by love, and then stand together. We've all experienced evil in the world, each experienced good. Debates about the mark on Tripp's head end with the mark itself. We are glad for it. Amen. Well, Nick? Yes. <laughs> How do you feel now that your, uh, your child is protected from the devil's whims? I was honestly just thinking that you are always the first person to initiate the conversation section. I don't think that's a bad thing. I really don't.
It's just an interesting observation. So I was, I think, I feel like we're all sort of waiting for you. I'm bold. Yeah, what like can I say? Called out in college. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're all, well, no. uh, but also we're all kind of relying on it. We're like, what's he gonna? Uh-huh. How's he gonna open us up? I, I, I like to begin things with with direct confrontation. <laughs> what, were your, what were your reflections as the dad on yesterday on the baptism? Curious. Um, we haven't had a chance to really talk about it. You know, it's funny. Ali and I were talking about the idea of original sin because my background is a. Uh, a guilt-filled Catholic, mm-hmm. and you know we Trip was baptized in the Episcopalian Church, which you know is very similar to Catholicism. Correct. The, the Mass is the same, you know the prayers are the same, um, the markings on the cross are the same. Everything's the same. It seems like well, know, Anglicanism is similar to Catholicism. Episcopalianism right. is like the liberal American cousin. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but I don't know the idea of original sin. You know, Allie was like, "My child does not sin." Right. You know, because I I made the right. comment. I said, "Ah, he's now free from original sin." <laughs> and, and she said, "She said he has he has not sinned." You know, you, know you, you take the, you take the boy out of the Catholic Church, but you can't take the Catholic Church out of the boy. Hey, yeah, you because know, because this is what I've been taught. And I said, "Well, it's not his fault." You know, technically, it's Eve's fault. You know, uh oh, that's a big, <laughs> darn that darn a woman, discussion. right? Yeah, which which you know, frankly, goes back to the author's fault. But anyway, so <coughs> right, you know, excuse me, the idea of original sin, I, I was kind of you know when she said when Ali said that you know my child has not sinned, I said well yeah you're probably right you know he has not sinned. Mm-hmm. Do I do I still, in my thirty almost thirty three years of age, believe in the idea that we are all born with sin? In a in a legitimate, concrete way, we're born with it. You are born. You have this mark. It's like a. It's at least it was taught to us. It's like a black mark of original sin. Mm-hmm. And to that, for that to be lifted, you have to be baptized. That's the only way it works. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I I more posed the, the question to the table because I've been thinking about it for like twenty hours. What did though? <laughs> I mean, I know. I know. There's a lot of people going to have different. I'm I'm a little more interested though, not quite in whether people believe on the original sin. I was just kind of curious about what your reflections were of the process. Were you reminded of your own, not of your own baptism because you didn't see your, but were you reminded of? I, I don't know what ritualistically was it something you wanted to do? Yeah, yeah, we've definitely wanted to do it. It's it's a little bit of a rite of process, or a little bit of a, of a you know. I think it's you know we want to bring him up in in the Christian church. Right. You know, we're in the church where we want him to be raised. We both have faith. Right. Um, you know, even though uh, I have shed a little bit of my, you know, hardcore Catholicism, mm-hmm. I think all the fundamentals are there. And my big thing was always that it's really about the fundamentals. It's not so much about the specifics or the details. <laughs> well, that's that's just if I may jump in just for a moment here. Mm-hmm. This is really a question about orthodoxy that you're asking. Yeah. And uh, there's been a long-standing debate in Christian theology of orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. And that's the big debate. And, and those are both Greek words. And one of them <laughs> is the – well, because it, that's how old it is. They're literally having conversations about things in which the original church leaders would talk about this stuff. And, you know, the origins of the church – are not as concrete as people like to believe it is. It just isn't. The Bible wasn't decided on until like 350 
you know, the Council of Chalcedon didn't decide, you know, the orthodoxy of, of Catholic and Orthodox faiths until, you know, close to a thousand. You know, I mean, like, th there are there are just so many, it took so long for things to get, you know, put into place. And so much of what we think of as necessary as the Christian faith is just not. Like, the book of Revelations wasn't accepted as an actual text of prophecy until the 400s. It was even then. It was fiercely debated. No one has any idea who wrote it. Well, let, it let's is, stick it on came that. out of nowhere. Let's stick on. I'm, I'm kind of. No, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. I just, it's right. just that 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 orthodoxy that you're talking about to me is what I, I think it's important, um, but I detest how it drives people away mm -hmm. because I think I am a Christian. I am a firm Christian and I believe that orthopraxy which is how you should act is the most important part of Christianity it's what 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 the point of being Christian is how you should act how you should love how you should grow how you should you know interact with other people and I think understanding your faith is important understanding your own orthodoxy and understanding the history and, and the details they do matter do you, do you believe in original sin do you understand whether or not that's true because if you do then whatever you're a Catholic and you believe that that's fine mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that but if you also don't, you shouldn't be considered, you know, a heretic or someone right. who's not a true Christian or someone who doesn't right. understand the faith. Like, it, it's led to people being intellectually uncurious. You should never, ever criticize a child for being curious about the details of faith. That is what leads to people turning away from faith because they don't get satisfactory answers. So that's just my piece mm -hmm. on it. I didn't, I, that's just... Yeah. And, uh, you know... I guess standing there as the dad, you know, I feel proud, you know, he's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's hard because it was yesterday and it was hectic. Yeah. He was less than thrilled. He, there was crying, uh, you know, it's that devil. It's that devil. <laughs> it's that devil leaving. Sorry, I have to keep laughing. It's that devil that. leaving the body. That's right. Um, which is another tradition. Yeah. I mean, I joke about yeah. that, but that is another tradition. It's like, uh, you know, because we have confirmation at 12. We yeah. get confirmed into the church. You guys have what, first communion? Uh, first communion was second grade. Confirmation was eighth grade, which okay. is 12. I but there's, and, then, and then there's a wide variety, of, that Trey has pointed out, a wide variety of Protestants say, you know what, you shouldn't do this as, as a baby. You should do this at 12 or 18. That's the Baptist tradition. Right, which, when, they can, when they can actually come voluntarily and say, we're going to go. We're yeah, gonna it's go not even 12. It's that you should be a fully <laughs> choosing adult. And you should say, I want to come to the faith, and I'm going to be baptized in the faith. That is the that is the Protestant, Baptist, and Anabaptist tradition, which I and and I and I think you have to too. But I just yeah. my point is is even regardless of what you believe, I think that that I, it just I, I thought yesterday was just a fantastic day, and, yeah. And and you know in that sense that everyone was together, and they were surrounding this infant with love. You know, I'll tell you from uh, just from the parent standpoint, um, and this may be. This may be taking the conversation in a different direction. So if it is, Love it. straighten me out. Love it. But as the parents, and he's one years old for background, but as the parents, we still feel this need to um, to make sure he's so well behaved all the time. And that if he isn't well behaved, he's <laughs> crying like he was yesterday, that it's a reflection on us. That is so normal. You know? That's exactly what it, it's about. And so yesterday was stressful. You know, he mm. was crying and, you know, just literally not happy um i don't think anybody in my family listens to this 
So I can say we're a little ticked off on my sister for being for being 15 minutes late because he was cool. Up Calling out Alyssa, there. ladies and cool, gentlemen. Okay, but she's a godmother, so she you know she's all right. But you know, but the thing I can tell you is that is so natural, normal, and every single person, including the priest, if he had done anything else, they would have thought something is strange with Kara. Like that's what <laughs> babies do. Yeah, and it was great. And you could tell. I'm sure he's he's done you know baptisms for you know hundreds of crying who were probably oh, yeah. much more hysterical oh, yeah. than, than trip was mm-hmm. um but that was that was stressful you know and he was he was better when we got back to the house which is good and then you know took his nap and whatever I, he's he's teething at the same time so right you know yesterday even after the nap he just had periods where he was you know not thrilled with life but um well what you're talking about stressful. is is really the point of church like the reason why yeah. church exists like Church, well, really, you could argue if you're cynical, you could say church exists because people wanted money. But the, <laughs> but the reason why, in theory, why people like Paul would found churches, right, is that they wanted to foster community around faith. Mm-hmm. So the goal of it is that you have friends and family coming together, surrounded by love and saying, "I'm going to build each other up." It's it, and this isn't a time in which, you know, people were discriminated against for their faith. You know, they were prosecuted for their faith. They were chased out of town for their faith. They Most people were destitute, starving. Um, so so for when people were coming together, that really means something. They, it really meant something. And he said, no matter what, we're going to stick together. We're going to, you know, shoulder each other's problems, shoulder each other's doubts. And I think what you're describing, that feeling that, you know, Dad, that you had about how he was sheltered by love. And, and Nick, you know, the fact that, you know, you were embarrassed you know that you felt like something you were doing with trip was wrong but then everyone was still there and we were all you know supporting you and doing the best we can like that stuff is what church is supposed to be like it's not supposed to be like boring hour and a half long masses and you don't really understand what's going on and you only go because you feel guilt like that isn't supposed to be what church is it isn't at all and like that is what i feel very strongly about and and i'm glad you had that positive experience around baptism and 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 i think that's a positive great positive thing and like I said, you know, th- I think the most important tenet of what you can do with faith is is doing your own research into what's happening and understanding where the context of these traditions come from and, and why do we do this and is this something that's important and does this change how I understand God? Like that stuff is crucial. And I, I yeah. think... I think to me that's what confirmation is. You know, you come to confirmation and it's all, you know, I also kind of think, you know, when you get to the to the various denominations, you know they each do everything in a, in their own way, but it's all the same goal. Whether you you know you're getting baptized willingly, and if you're getting confirmed willingly, I always was taught confirmation was kind of like you know now that you're old and you old now that you're twelve, right? And you have a full <laughs> understanding of life and liberty and freedom. Are you still willing to accept and confirm your um, you know, commitment to the faith and to God. So, you know, it, we were very, we were very happy to have all of you guys there as our family with us. And it was nice, you know, going back with everybody to the house afterwards and just kind of like sharing in that moment for at least for a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of, you know, it's hard. It's hard for me. I've always been somebody who looks forward to things. Even when I was little, I always wanted to grow up and that was what I wanted to do. And so even now I'm looking forward to, you know, 
sending him off to, to Sunday school, you know, and sitting in mass and, you know, he goes, you know, for an hour with, with the youth minister and, you know, I went to CCD kind of like that. I right. Think. Right. Um, um, having those conversations with him and it's, it's standing there. It was, it was, I was trying to appreciate the moment, but it's also hard not to look forward to all those things at the same time for me. How about you, John? I, I, um, I feel like I have your sentiment about it, that it's just this, it was a very beautiful ritual. Right. And we, I, I know we left there being me and Alicia because we all kind of, you know, went our separate ways after. And we, you just noticed everybody was lighter. The family, you know, the parents, the godparents, the yep. grandparents. Yep. And it was, um, uh, it was A, the first baptism I'd ever been to. Ooh, so Ooh. it was like a debut for me. Starting off wrong. <laughs> so I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that was a good one too. Um, now, now, just to give you a little bit of context, normally what would happen is it would be <laughs> stuck in the middle of an hour-long service. Yeah. yeah. So the parents' level yeah. is much higher even. Much it's higher. less intimate. And yeah. I loved it. I and loved it, that it was, yeah, cause that it was, was just really so nice. everybody understands this was a private ceremony they're doing now you know, because of COVID. So we, there was only just the immediate family and it was quiet and it was, it was wonderful. Yeah. You know? Trying to sing the, the idea of trying to keep that kid quiet for 40 minutes right. and then usher him up into a line of children to be baptized. Also God himself couldn't help you with that. <laughs> yeah. I'm That's sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt rough. you, but, but go ahead, please. But I, I mean, the, the real takeaway was, that, uh, you know, despite, you know, uh, would he be consenting to this, his little, teeny boy body mm -hmm. like n none of that seemed to really matter it was just mm -hmm. just the beaming love and support like the people that showed up and nobody's like taking pictures and they're just so happy it's happening and he's screaming <laughs> he's having a horrible time right and i'm rooting for him to get dunked harder because <laughs> that's like you know if you're gonna do it you might as well you know do it right yeah and it was throw the in experience the river. was great it's it the way you do it yeah all the way <laughs> yeah you go full tilt and you know, he wasn't pulling any punches. He wasn't. The priest definitely, I've only seen, I only remember seeing one other baptism. And it was a Catholic baptism, which, I mean, if we're going to talk about the baptisms, Catholic's got to be like the most hardcore baptism, right? And I felt like yesterday was pretty on par. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. The I don't think Baptist baptism is pretty, That that's the one where they actually yeah, physically you know throw them in the. I retract my statement. <laughs> Baptist, born again baptism. Yeah. yeah and, Get out of here. And, and, and I will tell you the interesting thing. For me, is the structure, the moral structure, is so interesting. Uh, so I just think it's a requirement, and I and I and I'm not even. Yeah. You you have to have a morality that's. I have found because I was the same exact way. I was just like you. I went through the dogma. I listened. You know, there's a 20 minute sermon. There's communion. Everything is. You know, this is how it happens. And you go through it, and you're and you're you're just along for the ride as a kid. Mm -hmm. And then you get to communion, and you start, or you get to about 12 or 13 years old. I think this is also with with people with uh, bar mitzvahs. You know, I mean, in all confirmation, not confirmation. Communion. What did I say? Communion. Commun sorry, confirmation. Yeah, I, think, I think everyone tries to get their twelve and th almost all major religions try to get their twelve and thirteen year olds because of because well, the, the ancient traditions of like well, you're able to work on the farm now. Yeah, but so the you're an adult. So what's like, about they're about to do? You know, you want to get that morality in them, and you want to you know, which and and that is to go back to your story about the cats is what I'm trying to say. What's interesting is is I mean the cats, the dogs, that whole thing. What I was saying is is there. My question earlier was, was there a separate morality for that? Has there been a moral construct now of these are the Ten Commandments of animals? Do you know what I mean? Like, we have to go and rescue them, like, and we have to do this. And, and I, what I find is that you've got, as I've gotten older, I will tell you, 
having some kind of moral foundation, even if you, I think it's important that you don't select it, mm -hmm. that you adopt it. And you had had two shows ago, I think, or last show, mm -hmm. about the five affirmations. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm, I'm a Christian too, but I'm saying you have to have some kind of exterior morality that you at least are trying to live your life by. Because ultimately, in my experience, when you don't, even if you stop, if you, if you start from your God-given right to say, ironically, I'm an atheist and that's fine, you still should be developing and living your life on some basis of morality, not just, I do good things, therefore everything will be fine, and I just want to be comfortable and not think about it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? There has to be something else. And when you see people who don't have that foundation, you see how their lives end up. They're the ones that are doing dogfights. Right. They're, they're the ones, they, sometimes they make elected president. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a whole variety of people when you're just operating in your own vacuum. And so, you know, someone is, the, the benefits of that, I'll, I mean, I'll stop my speech, but I was really excited to see that because it's not like buying a car. That was the thing as a kid, I was always like, like 70% is kind of doesn't make sense, right? Like what, it, what am I believing in and what is this? And what you realize is, is that the church is great, but it's about men. You know, we had a great priest. Sometimes you don't have a great priest. Sometimes people are obnoxious. People get driven out of the church like Trey talks about, which is a huge mistake. They get driven away from any kind of morality because of man-based stuff. But really, and Because of who they are, too. It's not just man-based stuff. It's like, oh, you're gay, so no. Like, but, you, but, we're but not he, letting you into yeah, this church. To, like me, the, to me, the exploration of where we came from and where we're going and how should we live our lives is the most important journey anybody can take, regardless of your station or status in life. That That is the, the biggest adventure and the biggest thing that requires the most commitment to it, I think. You know, and, and going to church, like, it, again, it's not like buying a car. It's not like, well, it doesn't have all the features I want, therefore I'm not buying it. You, yeah. you know, you try to get something that you that you think is a positive influence. Yeah. And ultimately, right. it will be a positive influence. That's, in that's I guess, what I was yeah. trying to say about yeah. the orthopraxy thing, because, like, orthopraxy is about you adopt the Christian way in which you're supposed to live. Like, you're supposed to always forgive people no matter how terrible and how hard they are and how <laughs> right. hard it is. You don't want to forgive right? people. You're supposed yeah. to forgive people. You don't have to, you know, love child molesters, but you have to, you know understand that they are people too and you have to respect people no matter how awful they are and you have to be able to see evil for what it is you have to understand that the world can be objective that sometimes things just aren't subjective and you have to understand that you know there is purpose um that that exists like we are not i mean like you know nihilism is pretty in vogue at the moment but like that to understand that you can see past nihilism towards purpose and i think that is what orthopraxis is about and i do believe you know being able to understand, am I a Catholic? Well, what does it mean to be a Catholic? And, and do I believe what Catholics believe? Or am I a Baptist or whatever? The whole point of that is just, I mean, it's just different, you know, colors on, on suits that you wear. Like, this is just the point of baptism and the point of church and the point of faith and all that stuff. It's all boiled down to people who don't have control over their lives and don't have control over the world trying to help each other through a very difficult life that everyone has and baptism is is an induction into that and i just you know i, I think it was a beautiful moment for all of us and i love trip yep. and, and um, i just i'm just appreciate the fact that you and ali have done the, are, are ready to do the hard work of the responsible part of establishing some kind of moral structure for my grandson that's a really that's something yeah. that not a lot of people are doing nowadays and i really appreciate that you're doing that because he's going to thrive in that yeah yeah, definitely. And you have a lot of very interesting tabletop conversations trying to explain things to him. And yeah, with that yeah. preachy note, we'll, uh, no, just joking, but uh, on, uh, on that, we'll, we'll um, 
go into our next story, uh, which I believe is shifting to me. So and it's a little more heavy. Oh, okay. it's heavy. Are we? Is that true? It's heavy. Are, are we uh, prefacing now? Is I don't that know. <laughs> I thought we hadn't heard our stories, Dad. Oh. That's what I had thought. Well, no, I, but I, I guess I, I, I did you read it, it while I had left? Is no, that I've what heard happened? About it. This uh, is what happens when colleges shut down. <laughs> this is table talk, ladies and gentlemen. Table talk. The dark willows of the cemetery in Hollywood, Virginia, provide plenty of long shadows for passers-by. Cool shade for those seeking rest, and time to reflect on those long since dead. Time to remember the lives they lived, and those they left behind when time ran out. The willows dot the hills of the graveyard, miles of patchy green fields and decaying gray stones, each meant to encapsulate a life in just a few words. Those words often make up platitudes, simple assertions that the soul that rests here was a loving father or brave soldier. Other times the graves are smaller, the lives they represent having been cut too short to write anything other than their nearly overlapping dates of birth and death. But these graves, too, are just as noble and powerful as any grand tomb that declares that it houses entire generations of well-bred families. Grief cares not for status. Tucked between all these echoes of lives long since ended is a statue. It stands magnificently above the graves around it, regal and bearing, paragraphs of texts intricately engraved around its base, eager to tell strangers the story of the man buried beneath. Bible passages, offices, honorifics, and quotations surround the statue, all struggling mightily to define the man's legacy. The first words of the front placard make the case better than all the rest combined, though. A simple engraving that states, Jefferson Davis, at rest, an American soldier and defender of the Constitution. But despite how the shade of the willows and the efforts of the engravers attempt to hide the darkness harbored within those words, the first and only president of the Confederacy's first and only legacy is failure. See, if you've studied American history at all, you're aware of what I like to call the caveat. The caveat is that moment all Americans must face, unavoidable and profound, in which slavery, Jim Crow, and racial inequality derail the grand narratives we tell ourselves. Narratives that soothe us, telling us that our past is uncomplicated, filled with distinct heroes and villains, in which noble American knights slay the dragon of tyranny. The narrative that progress is irresistible and ever-marching. The narrative that all is equal and fair, even if things didn't used to be. The narrative that we are untainted by the sins of the old world. A cynical man would say that America's legacy is only white supremacy, and he would be wrong. But white supremacy is certainly a legacy America must grapple with for the insidious darkness of racism can only be banished by the piercing light of truth. The murder of George Floyd has left millions grappling with what that truth might be and what that means for the truth they've told themselves. See, above all else, Americans are a proud people. We don't like people telling us what to do or what to think. We love underdogs, and above all, we love winners. Our history is one of a 200-year ascension, an ascension that took us from being a backwater colony to the undisputed superpower of all the world. Our favorite stories are those of rags to riches, stories in which the poor, the sick, and the down on their luck beat the odds and triumph over all adversity. We like Rocky Balboa, George Bailey, and Atticus Finch. And yet, despite all the success, a significant part of our history is possessed by nothing but failure. Failure and grief. Our founders, the men and women who did more to progress free thought than any other group in history, were all slave owners or those who tolerated slavery. Our ideals of democracy and liberty, so fresh and new the ink on which they were written has barely dried, are tainted with the red blood of slavery and racism. 
the failure of the USA to live up to its ideals, a failure personified by Tiverson Davis. Black America's story is filled with plenty of underdogs, from those who clawed their way to freedom, all while never losing their dignity, to the pioneers of culture whose brilliance gave the world jazz, hip-hop, and rock and roll. Despite all the best attempts of white America, black America's legacy is not one solely defined by suffering or pain, but instead by hope and laughter. I don't know how to fix all the problems surrounding the black community today, but I do know one thing. I know that, in the spirit of Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson, we owe it to ourselves to try. The status quo is not working. The status quo is not sufficient. And hopefully, with the possible dawn that comes with a new president, the journey that began in Quaker meeting halls and on the field at Gettysburg and on the bridge at Selma could begin once again, marching the nation towards that ever bright light of a day in which all men are created equal. A day in which the failure of America to live up to these ideals is but a distant dream in the minds of the people. A people who can sleep soundly in a nation of which they feel proud. A day in which Jefferson Davis is remembered as nothing but a shadow in the shade of willows. But until that day, we have work to do. I'm going to open us up this time. Rocky Balboa was a Democrat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought you'd throw that out. Oh, Just kidding. Really, yes. really great. And and so true. I don't yeah. understand why anybody's disagreeing with any of that. <laughs> well, it's it's about how you... I mean, like, I think the way in which we define ourselves is entirely about the story that we tell ourselves about who we are. So, uh, for a lot of people in this country, the story of who they are is defined by the nation they live in, their poor ancestors who came over on the boat and scrapped and fought and died for their progression and to get them to where they are, to make a free society for them and their children, which is a noble story to tell ourselves. But the story often ends up being simplified to just that. You end up with heroes that are the poor white men and women of the country who did everything they could to you know, make a just world and then to insert into that that most of those people were either directly helping directly defending or 100 percent tolerating slavery or racism or inequality or jim crow that really derails that narrative and especially when you know those stories will often start like if someone comes over in the boat in 1850 right that's the same time that slavery is happening so the story for them might be well, they came over and worked hard, and that built them to where they are. But the story of America is not about that at that moment. It's about the great injustice and the original sin of the nation that's happening at that moment. And and you can draw a direct line from those events, from slavery and Jim Crow, to the situation that black Americans are in today. The poverty, the crime, all of that stuff is a direct result of you know, outside forces oppressing a group of people in the United States. It's period, in a sentence. I mean, you can see it. It's it's there. And they like to think, especially because you'll have poor Americans, white Americans, you know, feel like their problems are being minimized. So you'll have poor white Americans who will have difficulties which are just, they'll be sick, they'll have not of health care, they'll have their children be addicted to opiates, they'll be living in poverty, you know, and you'll have politicians step up and say, well, I think we really need to focus on on race and how black people need to be better defended and supported. And like, that's true, right? And we should be able to say that 
black people should be supported and defended and, and police should be reformed and, and criminal justice reform needs to happen now and economic restitution needs to happen now. That stuff is necessary while also saying the government needs to step in and help poor people regardless of race. Like it shouldn't matter whether or not someone's black or white. But there is also historic injustice. You can't minimize that. And that, it just makes, it's victimization. It, 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 people feel like their story is being taken away. Anyways, that's that's generally what people I would think disagree with it. I guess what bugs me though is that I thought everybody learned this. Like, and we were talking about this the other day. History class, history class changes over the course of your education. In second grade, it's Christopher Columbus discovered America. You know, the Revolutionary War. We beat the bad guys. All is great. Okay. Then, in, then slowly as you get older the story changes a little bit. And then by the time you hit high school, they're like, okay, so here's the deal. You know, Christopher Columbus, maybe not such a great guy. Right. And here's, you know, the truth. Here's the context. Here's what's really going on and all these other things. I thought we all learned this. It is shocking to me. Well, some states straight up don't tell that in their history classes. I mean, I live in a very conservative, we live in a very conservative state, right? Historically. I thought we all learned this. I'm shocked that my grandfather, who's an educated, college-educated person, and I have to look at him and say, Christopher Columbus was kind of a man guy. Didn't you Didn't you know that? I thought we all learned that at some point. Right. I don't know. Well, I, it, we, are, we are a nation of immigrants that if you're white, and, and mainly if all are Asian, if you're anything other than African-American... All of our ancestors came here voluntarily by choice, right? And mm-hmm. and there there is generally in most families some kind of history of, let me tell you how hard we had it. Yeah, and that is in the Italian community, the Irish community, even you know the, you know even the wasps in New England will tell you it was a it was terrible. We all starved. You know, everyone has that story, except uh, the black community, which is my ancestor was pulled out of a completely different continent, had chains wrapped around his neck. And he was lucky enough to survive, and there was, a, you know, stuff down in a hold of a ship and sent somewhere, and, and we know the story. And so... And you can tell, too, that it's like the effects of that are so clear because other current-day African immigrants, like people who come from Nigeria and Kenya and, and, and Tunisia, and like those people are some of the most successful immigrants in the United States today. Like, the the I think it's the third highest group income group in the United States are Nigerian Americans. Like they just are the effects of slavery and Jim Crow are not around. Like some people really like to make it about race. They're like Europeans just work harder. That's what they think. And they think Africans are lazy or black people are lazy when it's so clear that it's like the things that were done to the black community compounded until they were forced into abject poverty. And once you are forced into abject poverty and you're ghettoized, it's really hard to break out of that. Like, it's pretty easy to understand why the mafia would come out of the Italian community because if you ghettoize a group of people and the only way that you they can get out of that is through an organized crime organization, it's just going to produce more organized crime in that community. That's where that comes from. I mean, you don't see anything else other than that. So I, I'm with you. I think it's absurd that people still feel this way, but it doesn't mean that it's just about everyone's story has to be allowed to be told. And I, my biggest, and I don't, I certainly don't want to monopolize the conversation, which I have a tendency to do, but I have been looking at this a lot, and I'll tell you that what we're really talking about isn't even a historical context. We're talking about why do so many white people feel the way they do about black people, 
Like what, what is that? Like why, this is like that, uh, you know, there is a, there's a terrible invisible um, prejudice that exists quite often. And I can only speak to myself. I mean, I, it's, I'm not without prejudice. I was, and I don't think anyone is, and I don't think that black people are without prejudice. I don't think, I think human beings naturally yeah, I mean, there's in-group out groups. There's plenty of I mean, like, I, I, homophobia in the black community. There's but I mean, plenty I'll, of racism I'll give you a, in black a, a brief example. If someone gets pulled over, a white police officer, and I pulls over an African American man, he has a six times higher rate of not only being, not only of something happening to him, like being tasered or having physical force used on, but just being arrested yeah. than a white person. And you're like, well, yeah, that's a ghetto issue, but it's really not. What, what because it, what you find in the federal courts? I don't know if I shared this with you guys already, but they actually just did a recent study on on uh, African-American federal judges. So these are judges that are selected by the President of the United States, uh, confirmed by the Senate, and they have a lifetime appointment. They generally, frankly, are some of the most uh, you know, great ju judges out there. They're the top of the federal judiciary. These are the federal judges. They're mentioned in the Constitution, et cetera. If you, if you actually track opinions, and, and the last thing a judge wants to do is be overturned. They, they don't want to be appealed. They don't want to lose an appeal because when you lose an appeal as a, as a trial judge, a higher court is saying you've done something wrong. You made you've misapplied the law. You made a mistake. You violated someone's rights. Turns out that black judges are overturned something like five to six times more hmm. than white judges. And they've and this is I mean that is about at the far end of the spectrum. And there is a there is a some kind of perversity that is going on. Well, it's about something that's been there for a long time. It's yeah. like the hard hat community. And when I say that, I'm referencing the hard hat riots that happened during Vietnam, which are people who are socially conservative, but economically liberal. So like they believe in unions and they fight for, you know, generally the, the working class and they like tariffs and all that stuff. Um, but then they tend to be iffy on race and sexuality and stuff like that. Those are Reagan Democrats and Trump you know, Obama, Trump, Democrats, like those people tend to be those kind of guys. But I don't know of any other group that can, there is no other society. I mean, without African-Americans, you don't have an American culture. You just don't. You don't have any of it. You don't, as Trey pointed out, you don't have jazz. You don't have anything. And by the way, the Capitol was built by slave labor. So most of Washington, D.C. was built with that. Some of our great buildings in the United States were built by slave labor. And so you just don't have a culture. And they have, the fact that they have managed to, to really permeate the culture in the world culture of how the world views us in every part of their endeavor is extraordinary to me. And, and you would think that we would, so far removed from slavery, still not have these conversations. But I think we're actually issues. really not that far removed from slavery. We're only like five generations off from slavery, which isn't that much. We're talking about how like grandparents of grandparents would be slaves for, of right now. Like my, my great, great grandfather was around during slavery. Like yeah. this isn't that far off. Like we, they, like this is still very fresh wounds for a lot of people, and change happens slowly, especially cultural change. I think so. that's I think that's our biggest fight. You know, the big fight forever was getting the law changed, which is not insignificant. And they we had got that changed. They got that changed. Um, now it's like we're drive we're trying to drive the evil out of people's hearts. That's a much that's a much more difficult battle. I mean, do you do you feel do you, what do you guys? I mean, you guys are millennials. Do you feel it? You feel what, what, is, what degree does racism play in your generation? I mean, I, I think it's it's much higher than expected because, uh, you know, for us, like our, you know, we, we had eight years of this president we really loved. We felt like progress was strong. And we said that that has to be a bridge to something. Yeah. 
And the fact that it swung the other way has been very heartbreaking. And we, we're, we're still trying to figure it out if this is a re-educating process. Like if you have people that didn't manage to grow through the last administration have to come out and behave in a way that seems very backwards, if they have to now come out and now we have to do confrontation and protest, and this is kind of how we drag it into the light, you know, for the sake of, you know, forward momentum. It's, I think we're just, we're, I, I know at least in our household, we're struggling with this moment because it seems unnecessary. It seems unproductive. It seems like if we just redirect the energy and find, you know, we could, we could find better solutions than what we have at the moment. And I, I but I, I think we, you know, all of a sudden, like, around 2016 you had all these friends that seemed to kind of be splitting at the seams and you didn't really understand why they would be going you know different directions and it's just it, it feels like it's kind of rolled out of control over the last couple was that, of years was that economically because you guys got whacked in 08 and economically we, we, or what? We, we, we were a, a product of the upswing of somebody you know uh, somebody coming in grabbing a hold of the economy and giving us stability like I my my safest feeling years despite being much younger were under you know somebody kind of riding the ship well and, I mean I think I think you you said driving the evil out of people's hearts like is a great example of like what you're talking about like it's just about like listening to people like I feel like the truth is that there were just a lot of people who felt like they were being ignored even if they weren't like there were a lot of people who felt like they were being ignored and and that comes from like if you have a group, right, that is overrepresented forever and you have a, a, a tremendous amount of people who are the only ones who are listened to and then they start becoming the people who are not the only ones who are listened to and then bad things start happening to them, they will take that and they will say that's correlation. Like there are people who are like, I lived in 08, right, and the recession happened and then a black guy became president and I couldn't afford a house and – I feel like I'm trying to do my best to understand things, but they're just not this, this, these people aren't listening to me. These liberals aren't listening to me. These corrupt DC politicians aren't listening to me. This black guy who's president isn't listening to me because all they care about is making sure that the police get defunded, which that is what they think. Like that's straight up what they think. And that comes from a failure in, <laughs> in outreach from Democrats and it comes from a failure in outreach from liberals from thinking that we don't care about them because we can make racial progress in this country and also not ignore rural people. That is something that is possible to do. We cannot say, we can say, hey, we're going to stand up for the working class and we're going to actually support poor white people and also say we're going to continue to yeah, make but George, racial progress. George Ford wasn't lynched in the sticks. He was killed in downtown yeah. Minneapolis. He was by a guy who, you know, he, I mean, a guy probably has some African-American sports heroes or... Maybe listen to Kanye West. I don't know. The, but the point is, is it, it's like the other kid that I, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. Arbery, the jogger who was oh, murdered by yeah. those two goons in Atlanta. Yeah. That was in a neighborhood pretty much like everywhere in America. And these guys, one of whom had law enforcement background, says we can use deadly force against this black guy. He presents a clear and present danger when he, all he was doing was running through a public street. I mean, I didn't have a speech for Trey. Certainly, not, I mean, this is terrible, but I never really had a speech with law enforcement for Alicia and Allie, my daughters, when they were growing up. It was just be careful and get home. It was never occurred to me 
that a police officer might be a danger to them. With Trey, it was a little bit different, frankly. You were a male, and I used to say, here's my speech, and this is how different I know than there is a black guy's you know, father's speech. My speech was completely believing in the system. I mean, I'm a lawyer, but I was like, look, Trey, whatever happens when you get pulled over by the police, it's yes sir, no sir, do what you do whatever they want you to do. If they want to arrest you, go peacefully. We will work this out. That's <laughs> what courts are for. We will determine what happened, and I believe in the system, and this is fine. And Trey, I think, followed that. But I, the idea of saying, Trey, be careful, you could be killed if you get pulled over because someone views you as a threat, that, that, is, that can't happen in this country anymore. And my generation blew it. We dropped the ball. I don't, I don't see. And you guys have to pick it up. Our, our dinner, like John was saying, I mean, I feel like there was a time, I think, when we would sit there and we would say, well, you know, racism eventually is going to die as the generations progress. But honestly, I'm not so sure anymore. There are just as many people our age and my age who, you know, I don't know if they reverted. I have, I have one clear example where it's a very good friend of mine who I went to college with. He voted for Obama with me. Um, we were, it was not even a question. It was, you know, we were pro-Obama. And right now he is one of the most hardcore Trumpers I know. And he's a super educated, he's a doctor. He's super educated. He doesn't believe in wearing masks. He thinks it's a hoax. <laughs> I don't know, you know, how do you, that, that's kind of a hope killer for me. I don't know, you know, and it's not so much that. Well, that's the story of reconstruction. I mean, honestly, if you're to, this is this this what I wrote here is is I mean, racism is a complicated topic. We can go on it for hours, but it's really just about the stories that we tell ourselves. And you know, Reconstruction is a story that we should learn from. Reconstruction is a story of failure all around, not just because because in 1870, you know, there were black senators and black representatives, and there was true equality, and all of that stuff was straight up happening everywhere, and like. In 1970, there was just as much racial equality as there was in 1870, which is really saying something. And it took a straight-up occupation of the South to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And it is a failure all around because the U.S. government both failed to listen, it, to continue to protect black people, and also completely failed to listen to the poor whites who were living in the South as well. Because the truth was, although a lot of them were just Klansmen, racist people who were lynching black people who deserve not to be listened to, there were a lot of moderate poor white people who were tired of the military occupying their their states and not being allowed to vote for their own representatives. They were also tired of that. And like the ability and failure to listen to both sides and to refuse to try to come to some sort of compromise is what leads to real strife and you know we need positive justice rather than negative peace you know it means and that's a king idea which is that we can't sit here and say i'd rather there be no conflict than there be justice there needs to be racial justice in this country it needs to happen 100 percent, and whatever it takes for it to happen we can do but that doesn't mean that we should completely shut out and ignore people who might be allies if we listen to them because there are plenty of people who would consider supporting racial issues if we could approach them in a way in which they understand it, in which they don't feel left out. But but do you you two have friends or contemporaries that you would view as racist? Oh yeah, yeah, a hundred percent, especially <laughs> in law school. Using uh, like using epithets like the N word, the classic racism, or is it more like? I, I think a little bit of all of it, and you also feel you you people pick up that narrative of feeling like harmed 
by the last administration and and almost to where you point at like how the story was my immigrant so and so and how i mean it is it's not even without a like without a question everybody had beaten down a path and made my life so much easier i couldn't imagine latching onto that and i feel like a lot of people on the other side are I, I don't see how they get away from that that they see that progress no matter what it, it serves everybody but they still it, it's kind of like they're um they're at a cafeteria picking things they like and ignoring you know things that matter and then they just they render this strange opinion and that's kind of how i feel and mm-hmm. in you're kind of waiting for this group to be re-educated or their opinion to expand a little and it's just this patience exercise and you still you know they're people they're people with opinions and that's very valid and fair but at some point it became impossible to entertain a conversation or figure out what's going on with their side of it and I, i just feel like i'm stuck in the middle of team sports and we're just kind of watching it all bubble up until right. something happens i'll tell you what i i mean i know we're, we're going over probably but i what i'm very encouraged by i don't know if you guys have noticed this but you know how you you have this spate of heavily armed white very conservative i don't know if they're not all but it, for example at uh, charlottesville you know there were a lot of heavily armed white supremacists there and so we see this narrative now where these a lot of white counter protesters are showing up heavily armed mm-hmm. have you seen this though that there's now large groups of african-american men that are showing up to protect the protesters with rifles like they're showing up a lot of those people are the new black panthers well that's yeah, like, but what just, they call themselves but what's the interesting about it is 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 that they are starting to remake their neighborhoods and they are as i think the african-american community has always done is that they are taking it upon themselves to make those changes the other thing that's really happening is, is a huge voter push they're saying you know what fine we're gonna do what you guys do you know we're, we're not gonna be you know we're gonna have guns in our house to protect ourselves we're gonna have we're gonna exercise these rights and they're seeing how important the voting the voting is and i it's got i you know unfortunately it's just it is a sin and it and it's not regardless there isn't a religion you can belong to uh that doesn't dictate that it's a sin because it is and and it's a promise in this country that's got to be kept and and it's a struggle as i said we my generation bobbled it you know we we blew it um we pushed obama we supported him obama only got elected because white people voted for him but the truth is, is there was a large number of people which viewed him as a threat, which is hilarious because, you know, he was anything but, obviously. So hopefully you guys do, your generation does to what you do with taxis and <laughs> restaurants and you and you see this wrong problem and, you know, hopefully that'll bring it back. I hope we can get, we have to work towards it because we have to have equality under the law. We'll try. Anywho. Do it. <laughs> yeah, Nick's all on you, all on your shoulder. The entire history of racial justice. We're handing justice. that over. Go uh, wrestle with Jefferson Davis. All right. <laughs> Anywho, all right. So, um, I believe our final story is coming up. Nicholas Castellano closing us out. All right, dear Nano, this is Nicholas, your grandson. While you may not recognize my voice right away, I know it sounds familiar. You know my face, but can't come up with the name to match it. Don't feel embarrassed. Don't feel the need to hide your unawareness. Take a moment to look me over. My feet are yours, both pointing outward, away from each other. The insides of my ankles sagging down toward the ground. The foot braces you are wearing were made to to delay this process. You can see that I'll be wearing them soon enough. My face reminds you of your son's when he was younger. Not the nose, but definitely the eyes. I'm a splitting image of your boy from his third grade school picture, kneeling in the pews of his Catholic school chapel. It's been hanging in your hallway for 50 years. 
You pass it every morning on your way to the kitchen to eat breakfast and read the newspaper. Maybe as your mind sees these characteristics and connects them with your own characteristics and your children's, your children's characteristics, it will start to come back. Maybe the memories will slowly trickle back into your brain. First, you remember Saturday mornings at La Terracita or Gallo de Oro, eating Cuban bread with cafe con leche. Your son traveled a lot for work, and I would stay with you when I was young for three or four days at a time. You would take me to these restaurants, relics of the old Ybor City community you grew up in, and speak the old neighborhood's dialect to the waitresses, an idiosyncratic mix of Italian and Spanish. You would order me a cafe con leche and teach me the right amount of sugar to put in the 32-ounce cup of coffee. If we went to Gallo de Oro, you would order me an omelet filled with bacon and sausage, big enough to account for all three of my meals that day. Next, you remember picking me up from school. You didn't pick me up every day, like my cousins, only sporadically. When you did, you would get me first, then make the longer drive out to South Tampa for Ross, Brett, and Troy. You would proudly drive your white grand caravan packed to the gills with grandsons. We would loudly whisper curse words at each other in the back seat, knowing that you couldn't hear very well, and we would, in all likelihood, get away with it. Every time you picked me up, you stopped by the Wendy's at the end of the street to get us a snack. After finishing our burgers, fries, and sodas, you sat down and helped every single one of us with our homework. I considered you the smartest person in our entire family. You could come up with the answers to homework questions in any subject, but you preferred science and math. Even when Ross was taking high school calculus, you knew how to work his homework problems. Maybe today, you'll glance up for a moment and see me whipping up something in the kitchen for the family. Then it will hit you, and you'll remember, you were the first one to show me how to cook. I would come over on the weekend, and we would sit down and watch Food Network together. Our favorite was Emerald. Afterwards, you would pick your favorites from the show, print out the recipes on the computer, and we would give them a shot. You showed me how to make a simple roast chicken with vegetables, the kind of dish that sounds simple, but must be executed properly to be truly delicious. You showed me how to make your famous baked macaroni and how to butter the toast on Cuban bread from La Segunda so that it's just right. Most of this happened when we lived together. The memory of a young 16-year-old kid moving in with you starts to come back. We had moved away. That's right. Our family moved to Jacksonville for a while, then came back. I was the first to move back home and stay with you for four months while my family stayed back in Jacksonville. We spent a lot of time together back then. Every Wednesday, we dropped off Nana at the Italian club for poker. While she played, we went to different restaurants around town, trying nachos at each one to see which restaurant had the best nachos in Tampa. Eventually, we settled on TGI Fridays. Large, rectangular chips with all the toppings loaded on each chip individually, coated with a blanket of melted cheese. We played golf on the weekends at the Hall of Shame. The course was called the Hall of Fame, but our name was far more appropriate considering the groundskeeping. We would play with Don and the neighbor, or Ross and Brett if they weren't too busy. On Sundays, Ross and Brett would come over, and we would all eat dinner and play dominoes with Nana. We would always catch her trying to sneak the blank domino up her sleeve or under the table at least once each night. We would scream at each other, talk trash, and laugh until our cheeks were sore. Table talk wasn't just allowed, it was a part of the game. Much of it was done in an accent mimicking Jack Black from Nacho Libre. You would interject periodically, telling us, you'd get shot in Ybor City for that, or stop talking in that stupid-ass accent. We played and joked until 10 or 11 at night, even if it meant a little pain waking up for school early the next morning. We would take long drives around town together. After 
learning to drive in Jacksonville, I didn't really know my way around Tampa, so you showed me. You would take me through different parts of town on different days. One day we would explore South Tampa, with its winding streets lined with large houses. You would point out each person's house, who you knew, which ended up being every third or fourth house. The next day we would explore West Tampa, or Rocky Point, or Carrollwood. I would just drive for a few hours at a time, while you directed and provided commentary. It was probably the most talking you ever did. After all these memories come flooding back, you assuredly realize, yes, it's Nicholas, my grandson. My son's only son, the one responsible for passing down the Castellano name. You remember all those times we shared. The many, many laughs, the cooking, the drives, the golf, the nachos, the school pickups, the domino nights. You remember it all. I wish this were true. I wish that you could remember our history, your history, if you focused on it for long enough. I wish that when you see me walk into a room, you remembered who I was, who my wife was, and your great-grandson's name. I don't even know if you understand initially that he is your great-grandson. I know you recognize social cues, and eventually you figure out that I am your grandson, and my wife's name is Allie, and the small child with us is your great-grandson. We talk about whatever sports game is on the television, on a surface level. Maybe we joke about how there's always too much food at these family events. Each conversation we, see, we have seems to emphasize how much has been lost. When we end up in the same car now, I watch you stare out the window from the back seat. You aren't able to drive. You don't recognize your old friend's houses. There's no more commentary, no more Tampa history to share. Nana does all of your cooking for you. Those who'd say, no one cooks like an Italian grandmother, have never eaten Nana's food. Despite her heritage, she only started to learn how to cook a few years ago when it became a necessity. The last time she made your famous baked macaroni for a family gathering, she accidentally topped it with cinnamon instead of paprika. You don't eat nachos anymore. You don't eat much of anything anymore, except ice cream and pasta. When you're growing up, you look around at the people close to you and adopt the character traits they admire. From you, there were many. You were smart, stoic, kind yet cranky. It wasn't until they took your driver's license away that Nana had to fill her own gas tank. Now I always try to fill up my wife's gas tank for her too. When Nana was having an off day at the bowling alley, or you had, or had lost a few hands of poker in a row, you knew exactly how to toe the line between giving her support and advice without being patronizing. You were always the only person uh, that she truly listened to. You were the ultimate husband and grandfather. I promise now to carry that memory for you. Nick, Nick, you're gonna make me cry. Sorry, guys, that was a real bummer today. You're gonna make me cry. Yeah, that was the podcast. It was a real bummer today. No, it was amazing. It was a perfect way to end. It was great. <laughs> so I have a question. Are you ever are you actually going to play this for your grandfather? No. Why not? I think it'll just make him sad. I don't know. I guess I could. I never thought of it. I never thought about that. <laughs> so what drove you to put it in the form of a letter then? <clears throat> it's just something that's been coming up a lot lately. You know, he's ninety two. He is you know, physically He's fine, um, you know, more or less. But um, it's been a long six six years, and he's just, you know, his uh, cognition is fading more and more all the time. And it's just something we've kind of been grappling with. And, uh, and honestly, in, in honesty, uh, it was like a week ago. 
I was talking with Allie and I was like, what should I, what should I write about? What should I write about? And she, you know, we, we happen to be talking about this kind of a lot. And she said, maybe it'll be therapeutic. So she kind of gave me this idea. And, um, a part of me, I think wanted to reach out to the table and just see, you know, like this is, you know, imminent losing Nano is, is imminent at this point. That's, you know, at some point it's going to happen soon. And, uh, this will be, I'm 33 years old. It'll be the first grandparent I will have ever lost. Right. Um, you know, we really haven't lost anybody in, in my family. Um, you know, since my parents, grandparents, um, which was a long, 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 long time ago. I think I was three. So in 30 years, we've lost practically nobody. I had one uncle, you know, that was it. He was, he was an uncle in law. Um, so wanted to see what you guys thought about dealing with loss and, you know, talk about that. I, I mean, are you dreading it? Yeah, I think we all are. I know my dad is. He's so good at um, being strong for everybody, you know, but we're all dreading it. Ross, Brett, and Troy are going to, you know, I'm sure they're dreading it much worse than I am. You know, Nano was like a dad to them, picked them up from school every day, helped them with their homework. You know, from the moment he picked them up from school till 8 o'clock at night, they were with Nano and Nana. And Nana worked. And Nano retired pretty early. So, you know, Nano picked them up every day and was with them every day. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be, you know, in the I guess the tough part that I, you know, the toughest part is it's like we've kind of already lost them. Right. And, you know, it's and, and there's always that recurring sense of false hope when you see him. You're like, maybe if I say this thing, maybe I can stoke a memory. But you're not going to. It's, you know, he won't remember. It's it's like it's gone. So and he's is he otherwise healthy? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. It's the toughest part. You know, he's he's physically pretty healthy. I mean, he still goes out. We keep trying to tell him not to, but he still goes out to try and garden. You know, he did last week and, you know, they caught him almost before he fell, but it's like 100 degrees outside. Right. And he's trying to walk outside and like trim the trees, you know. I just... Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> I never knew my grandfather on one side um and then my you know and and that's you know that's his dad and he lost him when he was how old were you three three and a half yeah three and a half when he lost his dad and um so i never knew him and my grandmother his mother died when i was i think i was 10 when she died um and so yeah i think so and she had a lot of Onset, health problems, a lot of health problems, and I never really got to know her. Stuff, she was yeah. pretty much always at Nano's stage, where Nano yeah. is now. I never right. really got to know her, so I never really got to develop those memories. So what I've had is, and a kind of an odd experience with loss, because on one side, I've been pretty much unable to develop any kind of memories with grandparents at all, like none. Like it was pretty much always they were already dead, or they were on their way to being dead. So you mourned what could have been. I my when my grandmother died, it was mourning you know, the grandmother I could have known and the experiences we could have had. Um, but on the other side, I've had two grandparents who have been very much alive and cognizant in there my whole life. And so that I think is much closer to what you feel and what you're talking about. 
and I, you know, dread them dying too. And I, and I, I, I think loss like that is so, I mean, you, you, every time someone dies, you, you mourn something different because your, everyone's relationship is different. So like Nana will mourn something very different than what your dad will mourn and what you will mourn and what Brett will mourn and all those people they're mourning their own memories and who he was to them and what it meant to them and what could have been if things had only been different and if you'd made different choices and if you'd had just a little more time and it, it it's indiscriminate and it's different and I, I don't know I'm not an expert on grief but I I know that everyone feels it no matter what and you know we just have to help each other the best we can interestingly enough one of the things that that did kind of help me think about it uh, were the five rem- remembrances honestly that last last month's podcast thinking about that you know I don't know, you know? Well, and um, my, my history with it is um, super irresponsible family apparently everybody had children immediately so I had the benefit of meeting and going to funerals for five of my great grandparents mm. so like I was well versed in like where you're saying you've had this gap of, of no losses for so long ever since I was like seven years old somebody was kind of going out the door and it was um you know it was a long process till I I lost my grandmother um I think about two years ago now but a very similar situation as yours that was my first grandparent and I was extremely affectionate of my grandmother almost to the point where she was like a pseudo mother we did so many things together she was such a caregiver of me she was such like a safe space in my childhood and that's such a tough place to be in it's it's actually funny because i'm you know i'm a few years ahead of you but we're like on the same timeline Mm -hmm. and it was the same long walk of like six years seven years of like her being a little bit different but the same thing very physically strong worked in the yard you're like how's this happening this person is cruising around like they've preserved their body they just are getting taxed now for staying around too long. They're, you know, your mind deteriorates, and that's that's very difficult. And then you have to start adjusting who you are and not confusing them. And, and things you usually got interacting with them, I think it, it the role shifts where you're trying to create comfort and ground them, and it becomes a really strange relationship shift for, for the remaining time of it. But what the big takeaway was you know, over all those losses, as I, I kind of grew through it, it was, my grandma was definitely the hardest, Mm -hmm. but I felt the best about it because all of the memories you just talked about were this rich and wonderful life. And it's, it's a gift to even get to the end of the track and to, to run out of road is, you know, that's, you know, father time, undefeated champ. Yeah. And that's, that's as good as you can get. And I felt you know, very happy for her that she was just done because it becomes such a struggle towards the end. The confusion, um, you know, I just wanted her to have some peace versus me selfishly get a moment. Me to find her having that bright day where she said, oh, I just remembered this from your childhood. You know, it's it's very painful, you know, if, you know, all of a sudden he sees you as maybe his son or something and you watch everything get switched around. It, it eventually... You know, when I got to the funeral, it was it was extraordinarily painful. But as soon as it was done, I felt so good. I felt extremely good. But it's 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 you know, it's just part of that. You know, that's part of sticking with a family. 
eventually you yeah. have to you know you have to walk your family member out of life and i've i've been strangely connected to that insofar i've been in the room of two of my family members passing and that is that is a surreal extraordinary experience and it's it's hard to live and learn through but you know i, I think over time you you realize you know we could all be so lucky to you know have people um just gushing affectionately about how we, you know, affected yeah. their lives and that we we took it as far as we could possibly go because that's what everyone's attempting to do. That's true. It's that's just hard true. to talk about the goal of it. <laughs> yeah. If we're if we're making our actions count, you know, he's 92 years. He did, you know, they did that's a good huge. job. Well, there's a, yeah, and the, I mean, the nursing homes are filled with uh, people that have tremendous regret for what they didn't accomplish and alienated from their families. I only had the honor and it was an honor to meet him and talk to him. How, how long ago was that when I, when we all met, when the families met, when you guys got married, was that six years ago, seven years ago? Uh, no. 10 years ago. <laughs> three years ago. Three years ago. No, that's not true. Three and a half ish. 2017. We, we dinner at your parents' house. I feel oh, like no, that, that was, was like five years ago. That was, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, I met him, and, and everyone was really nervous because I'm going around meeting everyone, and your grandmother was talking, <laughs> his wife, and she was charming, and then I started talking to him, and he, she started getting nervous about what he was going to say because I think he was having some memory problems. Yeah, he was And what he didn't, what was great is, is uh, what I wanted to know was what was, what was Ybor City like in the 1950s? <laughs> Which he remembered. And he went <laughs> off for an hour and a half, and it was incredibly enjoyable because he had completely intact memories, was very comfortable, had total recall on... I think there's 10 stories you probably don't even know that he told oh, sure. me and just the rules of that and how he was, you know, navigating the community you're talking about. And so, and then he was at your wedding and he was wonderful. And I will tell you as a, as a grandfather, I, I mean, he did his job. Yeah. I mean, I hope uh, that I live a long enough to have a letter like that and B that I have, <laughs> you know, those kind of memories. And it's true. And this is, this is part of growing up. I mean, I, I did experience loss extremely early. Yeah, what's your what's your um, advice for dealing with grief? I mean, grief is grief. Grief was very mishandled uh, with in my house when I was a kid. And my mother, real quick, my mother lost both of her parents, her new her 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 mother in law and her father in law, and her husband within five years. So she got hit in her mid thirties with a lot of that. And back then in the seventies, I mean, I didn't even go to my my father's funeral because. Our pediatrician said it probably wasn't a good idea. So basically, you had this sense of loss where it was just kind of told to me and my sister one day, and I'll never forget it. it was forty-eight years ago that your dad's dead, and I still remember that. I was three and a half years old. So that though did give me a sense of finality. Like I will tell you, I will, I can tell you that the value of what you're going through right now is that you're thirty-three now, and Nano was thirty-three in his mind not too long ago too, and now he's ninety-two. So that kind of thing, if you do try to model and live your life knowing that it's going to end, like we talked about with the affirmations, yeah. there's a lot of value to that. But this is, a, this is the adulting part. You're, what you're talking about now is the change of the leadership of the generations where now your father and mother are up. You know, they are having to deal with their elderly parents and you hopefully will have to deal with them. And, yeah. you know, Trip will have to repay you for all of the late nights. But <laughs> um, the best thing you can do is just say, what a great lived life. And I would lean into the grief. I would lean into the mourning process. I would encourage you to, as John said, to be close to that process and to be really there for your grandmother because 
the memories you have are burned into you. He, it sounds like he taught you in a lot of ways how to be a man in a lot of ways and how you should act, right? You still model this behavior with my daughter, and I see that all the time, and I'm sure that comes from your father because your father was taught that by his... But he's always watching for slip-ups. <laughs> always, right. <laughs> but uh, I can just tell you that that's, that's a... You know, he's he was an extraordinary guy, but you can imagine the grief that your grandmother's going to have to face because they've known each other 70 years? They've been married, I'm, it might be 70 years. Could be, right? Something yeah. like that, 70 plus years, and now all of her memories, the only person that is alive that can talk to her about her life can't remember anything they did. Yeah. Yeah. So she's going to need, she's going to be lost, and she's going to need some help and love and support too. But, you know, the, the best thing you can give your kids is love and memories and a good name, and you're, he did that. I mean, he was someone you should tell Trip about. Uh, constantly you should fill him in on those stories he needs to know the continuity of where he comes from and the kind of men he comes from it's extraordinary yeah and you know we'll all be here for you it's a very tough situation but it is a natural this is a natural part of life yeah you know what i mean yeah yeah old age it's the only disease you want to catch yeah (laughs) so true right well ladies and gentlemen on that somber note (laughs) that ends our podcast today thank you ladies and gentlemen we're going to take a bit of a couple month break um and then we'll be back this november november raring to go raring to go full of stories see you guys later